The Lord be with you. Well, God bless you. We're together again for our second hour with one another. The same three challenges that we faced as we began the last time we face again, but now you dear people have been sitting here for some days as well. But trusting that God's three can still handle our four challenges or any other number that we might face for that matter, let us begin in the name of the Lord, trusting in his grace to sustain us. Our second part of the lectures is entitled Speaking Life in the Family of God. God hears our speaking because we are his children. At our supper table, my children all take part in the family conversation because they are members of the family. Each one has their own chair at the table. As they were born, my dad made them one. They have not earned these places. They are theirs by birth. As a father, I listen to them because they are my own dear children. They're all heard on this same basis, whether it is the oldest teenager or the youngest kindergartner. I'm thankful for this daily mealtime together as it connects us and forms a major part of our life. It is one of the few times that we're all together and get to live out our life together. Throughout the day, we're all off at our various callings, but most evenings we gather to share our meal and our lives as we speak with each other. Now, I don't want to paint to an idyllic a picture of life around the Reinhardt family table. At times, I may have to refocus the conversation or tone it down a bit or even a lot. There are other times when you have to drag the information out of some of the members. I don't know how you can spend a whole day at school and do nothing. <laughs> Our family table is a sinner's table, and so it's far from perfect, but it does give a picture of what goes on in God's family conversation. It is an image of that conversation after all, a shattered image, but an image nonetheless. As my children have a place at my table because they were born to me, and as I listen to them because I am their father, so too we have a place at God's table and our Heavenly Father listens to us simply because we are his baptized children. Our Father does not hear us because of our holiness. Prayer's power lies firmly in the word of God as poor sinners' mouths are open to pray it with God's Son. God does not hear us based on how good or bad we've been. Without question, sin makes it harder to pray. Like any other kid who gets into trouble, we can want to avoid our father's gaze. Our sin gets in the way of seeing his love. This is why regularly receiving God's forgiveness is so important for a healthy prayer life. God's forgiveness turns our eyes away from ourselves and our sin to keep them fixed on God's love for us in Christ. God will still hear your prayers when you've been bad, which is a very good thing because if we're going to take God's word for it, we're not the best of kids. Thankfully, being good or bad doesn't make you God's child. Being good or bad just makes you a good or bad kid. A bad kid is still a kid nonetheless. Our prayer is heard and answered, not because of our own goodness, but according to God's goodness. The prayers of the righteous are heard and answered not because of their own righteousness, but according to God's righteousness. The power of all prayer lies in the word of God, and not in the person who speaks it. 
so too we do believe, to not believe that there are holier people in heaven or in our midst who will be heard better because of their holiness. The only holier one we bring our prayers to is Jesus, and he is the one who sets them all before the Father. St. James rightly says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, keeping in mind the truth that none is righteous, because we all like sheep have gone astray. We see that he can't be thinking about the personal righteousness of anyone but Jesus here. Jesus is the righteous one who has heard for his many cries and is seated at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. In Christ, we are God's children. And in the righteousness that he gives us, and in his righteousness alone, do we make our appeals to the Father. The righteousness that we receive by faith is the righteousness of Jesus. Faith in itself does not make us righteous. Our act of believing does not make us righteous in God's eyes. Faith to be faith has to be faith in something. Faith in faith is no faith at all. Saving faith is always faith in Jesus. Faith receives the goods, but it is not the goods. Christ is. Faith is essential. Without faith, you can't hold on to Christ. Faith in Christ keeps us abiding in Christ. Faith has us standing in Christ and in Christ alone. Through baptism into Christ, we become God's children. Or as Luther says, we become little Christ. Clothed in Christ, God hears us as his dear children because we pray in Christ's own righteousness. When it comes to holiness, then, we're all heard based on the same holiness. We're all heard because of Jesus. Our Father does not hear us because we pester him. As our own holiness will not move God's heart toward us in prayer, we also must understand that God's heart is not moved by constant pestering. What a dear Father in heaven who opened up his heart to give us his only begotten Son while we were yet sinners, be deaf to our cries until we bugged him enough to get the answer we want. Such pestering for success in prayer again sounds a bit like the taunts that Elijah made towards the prophets of Baal. We'll not get God to do what we want by irritating him to the point that he gives us what we want. When Jesus gives the example of the poor widow who pesters the unjust judge until she gets what she needs, he is not describing the way that God works. Here is one of Christ's negative examples. If even the unjust judge will hear when the widow cries, how much more so will the just judge, who is a dear father, hear and answer when his children cry to him? Jesus calls his disciples not to give up in prayer, but to continue in the request to God in faith that he will answer out of his own goodness. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to continue on in the family conversation of the Trinity that deals with the needs of the world. In the right moment and in the right way, God will answer these needs according to his plans. As Jesus encourages us to continue to lay these needs before God, He's encouraging us to live out in repentance the truth that the Lord is God. Our tendency as sinners set on being our own gods is to try and pick up and carry God's own burdens. We take on things that are not ours to bear. 
in a recent conversation with someone who was wearied and worried with all the troubles in her family life, I told her, you know what, I've got some great news for you today. You're not the Lord. This is not something that you have to carry your fix. God, believe it or not, has got all of this covered. So the Lord allows us, though, to continue to lay the same burdens down before him. He schools us in the way of repentance. Needs that remain from day to day show us that we are not the Lord. Having to ask for help repeatedly for the same need frees us from the idea that we can handle life on our own. The time God uses to unfold his answers to our prayers serves his good purpose of teaching us to cast our burdens upon him. When you have to face the same problem over and over again, like St. Paul, you learn the sufficiency of God's grace for you. The problem that you cannot overcome teaches you your weakness, even as it turns your eyes toward heaven for help. We are allowed to repeatedly ask so that we can grow in asking and so be made ready to receive. Repeat praying draws us deeper into the truth of faith that help can only be found in the Lord. Repeat prayer breaks down our own will that we might learn to pray all the more according to God's will in faith and trust in him. Repeat prayer does not batter down the doors of heaven. It batters down the doors of my own sinful heart. Our dear Father does not hear us because of our commitment. The prayer of faith is not heard on account of my faith, where faith is my commitment to or belief in my own will. The prayer of faith is the prayer of trust, which lets go of my own will and simply and wholly rests in God's will for my life and the life of others. I do not approach God believing with all my might that he will do what I want him to do. My might will not bend God to my will. I am not God's God after all. In repentance, I recognize that the Lord is God. And so faith in prayer is all about submitting my will to the Lord's will, resting in his might and not trying to force my will upon him. Sadly, many believe that faith in prayer is all about my personal commitment to my will. Along the lines, if I truly believe that God will do what I want, then he will do it. But if I'm hesitant about this, or only half committed about that, then he won't hear me. I give good gifts to my children, not because they really believe that they should have them, but because I believe that they will be good for them. Even though my oldest is completely committed to having endless hours on the Xbox, out of love for him, the answer is one hour, once a day. On the other hand, I don't demand that he prove that he really wants his supper, not that that's ever a question, before I put his food before him at the proper time. Prayer is not some spiritualized form of the power of positive thinking, where if I really believe with all my heart, then I'll get what I'm asking for. God does not hear my prayer because of my commitment to it, or for that matter, on account of my commitment to him. God hears my prayer because of his commitment to me. He hears me because in Christ he has chosen me to be his child through my baptism. 
In the family relationship, a child's devotion to his parents may follow the parent's devotion to the child, but the parent's devotion always comes first. There be no child without mom and dad's commitment to have a child in the first place. A parent's commitment to their child is about their love for that child, not the child's commitment to them. The commitment of God is what gives birth to my own commitment to him. God loves me first in Christ, and only through that love am I able to love him back. As God chooses me in Christ, only then am I able to choose him back. Only as God commits to me in Christ am I able to make a commitment back to him. God hears and answers me when I pray because he is committed to me. He has promised to hear and answer. My promises do not move God's heart toward me in prayer. Kids may promise to clean up their rooms so that their parents will let them do what they want. In our house, it normally involves staying up for a hockey game. But our Heavenly Father doesn't look for such bribes, and he certainly doesn't respond to them. If we had to clean up our lives before God would answer, we'd be waiting an awfully long time. God simply responds to us according to his promise that when his children call, he will answer. He has promised to hear us because we are his children. As a father, he can't do anything but hear his children. To not listen to us, he would have to deny himself as father. Since we've been brought into God's own family, God could ignore our prayers as much as he could ignore the prayers of the Son or the Spirit. As he listens to them, he listens to us. In our baptism, we have been made one with the Son, and we've received the Holy Spirit. When we pray in Jesus, in the Spirit, the Father hears us with them and hears them in us. When his children pray according to his word, God hears because he is true to himself. He is true to his promise. He is true to his word. God doesn't listen to you because of your promises, but on account of his promises, which is a very, very good thing, since poor sinners like you and me aren't very good at keeping our promises to God. Our dear Father does not hear us because of our many words. The eloquence of the words does not make a prayer more effective either. Beautiful prayers are truly beautiful because of the beauty of God's word. While we may recognize the gifts that God gives someone for the poetry of words or clarity in speech, this does not make prayers more effective. The most beautiful prayer that a Christian can pray is the prayer that Jesus himself has given us. There is none no more beautiful in the ears of the Father. Here there can be no question that we are praying the Lord's word in accord with his will. These words and this will are without doubt the words and will of the Holy Trinity, as the Son himself has given them to us. Sadly, though, we can disdain this most perfect and beautiful of prayers while we focus on some words that we or someone else has chosen instead. This is not to say that there cannot be much beauty in other prayers, yet their true beauty lies not in what we bring to them, but in the word of God that they speak. When my children announce that they are hungry and ask, what's for supper? They're not required to put it in Shakespearean poetry to get something to eat. They might be reminded of their manners, that they should say please and be patient while my wife or I get it ready for them. They may be told not to turn up their noses at what is put on their plate, accompanied by the parental go-to story of starving children in Africa. 
They will be encouraged to ask for their daily bread with thanksgiving. But the reason why the meal will be put on the table is simply because my wife and I are their parents, and it is our love-bound duty to provide for their needs. No matter how beautifully they were to put it, they would not get chocolate with their breakfast, unless, of course, they are youngest daughter, Sophia. <laughs> you see what we're up against. You bat your eyes and cock your head as you ask, but she doesn't count because we had her too late in life, and my wife and I have already slipped into grandparenting mode with her. <laughs> she is God's special gift to my older children to save them from growing up under the tyranny of the idea that life is somehow fair. Now, although my children do not make their requests for pizza and Shakespearean sonnets, they do make their requests in the language of the family home. There are certain ways that we speak to one another because of who we are as people and how our family works. In its own way, each family has its own language and ways. When it comes to God's family, the same is also true. Now, of course, God hears the prayers of all his children in Christ and will answer them. He will provide for them when they call because he is their dear Heavenly Father. Our life with God, though, is not about bringing God into our family, but about us being brought into God's family. Our life with God is not about teaching him our language, but about him teaching us his language. My prayers are not heard better by God because they are said in beautiful prose or poetry just as they are not heard better because they're spoken really plainly or in rap. My prayers are heard because God is my dear Heavenly Father, and I am his dear child. Yet there is a family language that the Lord is teaching us in his word, a language shaped by repentance that humbly but boldly calls on the name of the Lord. We come as foreigners into God's house, and as we by God's grace grow in the family life, we do move from, hey, God, toss me a slice of bread, to, dear Father, give us this day our daily bread. Our dear Father does not hear us because of our feelings. Although this word of God should be prayed as though we mean it, and not simply rambled off without thought, or pr our prayers are not heard because of the emotions that are behind them. Prayers are not to be rambled off like some kind of spell or incantation. Prayers are to be offered in faith, but faith and feeling are not the same thing. While I may be aware of faith with my feelings, feelings should never be the proof test for faith. To say that I feel like I believe, therefore I believe, is a lie that has robbed many of the life Christ has for them. Not feeling as they think they should feel, they assume that they have lost faith and so walk away from God. When it came to the question of faith, the Lutherans refused to turn people in on themselves to find proof of its existence in their feelings. They simply continued to point people to the word where they knew faith was created. They directed people to God's promises in the gospel and God's living out of those promises in their baptism, absolution, and Lord's Supper. The Reformed teachers like Calvin wanting to find proof for lasting faith in themselves, turn people in on their own emotions, asking them to check out whether they were aware of faith inside and its fruits in themselves. 
Luther knew from his former life that no assurance of faith could be found within himself. He knew that his feelings were not to be trusted. We all know that feelings are notoriously unreliable. The newest term I heard lately to do with feelings is the word hangry. After much study, science is now able to tell us that couples fight more when they're hungry. So the term hangry. You're angry simply because you're hungry. If the scientists had bothered to ask any parent, they probably could have told them about the hangry phenomena and <laughs> save them all a lot of time and money. Any parent, whether their child is 2 or 16, would testify to the hangry phenomena. A piece of undigested meat can make us feel all kinds of things, even as Dickens Scrooge points out, it can make us see ghosts. Luther knew that he could only believe in God as his heavenly Father if the heart of that God was continually held up before him in the Son that he gave to save him. Faith is never something that is possessed, but something that needs to be continuously created and maintained. Faith needs the gospel every moment of every day, or it will die. Turning us in on ourselves tears faith away from its object and so kills it. Our eyes are no longer fixed on Jesus, but on ourselves instead. Resting on our feelings about Jesus is not the same thing as resting on Jesus. As Lutherans, we know that anything we bring to the table is going to make a mess of everything. When it comes to life of faith, it has to be only and ever about Jesus. As sinful human beings, our feelings cannot be trusted Sin has put them all out of sorts. The prayer of faith is born of God's truths set before us in Jesus that because of Christ, we've been brought back into God's family and he is our dear father. The prayer of faith is founded on the reality of our baptism. With our baptismal rebirth set firmly before us, there can be no question that we are speaking to our dear heavenly father as his dear children. As in any other family, Certainty of membership in the family is founded on the truth of birth or, in some cases, adoption. At times in our lives as children, we may feel like we don't belong to our families. We may have behaved badly or so feel like we don't deserve to belong. We may feel out of sync with our family because of the behavior of our own. Yet our birth stands there, testifying to the truth that despite our feelings, we are children of God. So too in the life of faith and our place in God's family, our baptism speaks to the truth even when our feelings fail us. The prayer of faith is a prayer that approaches God as our Heavenly Father and we as his dear children simply because that is the truth, whether we feel it or not, or for that matter, whether we believe it or not. Just as my belief in God does not make God God, neither does my belief that I am God's child, make me his child. I am his child because of my baptism, whether I believe it or not. The atheist's unbelief in God does not knock God off his heavenly throne and overthrow the divine majesty. The atheist can sit and close his eyes and pretend that there is no God. Yet despite his personal beliefs, God exists. So too my belief that I'm God's child does not make it true. Neither does my unbelief make it untrue. My unbelief will rob me 
of my birthright's benefits. If I don't believe that I'm God's child, I'll not approach him as a dear child approaches a dear father, or count on him as one, even though that is what he is and remains to me. The prayer of faith, then, is not the same as the prayer of feeling. I may feel very deeply when I call on the name of the Lord, but my prayers are not heard better because of how I'm feeling. I may not feel much at all when I am praying, and yet my prayers are still heard by God because he is my heavenly Father. The prayer of faith simply calls on God because of the truth of who he is to me through my baptism into Christ. I do not feed my children at home because they ask me for their food with feeling. I give them their food at the proper time simply because they are my children and it is my duty to give them their food as their father. The prayer of faith is prayed in the truth that God truly is my heavenly father and he will hear me because I am his child. What brings me to believe this is not my feelings, but God's word that proclaims this truth to me in the reality of my baptism. God hears us because he is our dear father. Will God hear me when I pray? Of course he will, because I am baptized. Will God answer me when I pray? Of course he will, because I am baptized. In faith, I can even go so far as to say, God must hear, God must answer, because he will always be true to himself. I'm not saying here that the Almighty isn't free to do whatever he wants, but God has shown us clearly in Christ what he has freely chosen to do for us. He has chosen in Christ to make us his children, and so he has freely chosen to bind himself to hearing and answering us. God has to hear and God has to answer because he has chosen to promise to do so. And he is one who will not go back on his word. Can he change his mind? As God, of course he can. But he has chosen and promised not to. Even when we are faithless, he is and always will be faithful because he will always be true to himself. The prayer of faith that God has promised to answer then is the prayer prayed according to God's word under God's will. The prayer of faith is the prayer that asks God to do what he will do. Learning to pray faithfully is about being brought by God deeper into the truths of his word and then asking him to fulfill his purposes for us and others. From outside the family, prayer that simply asks God to do what he is going to do anyway could seem like a bit of a cop-out. What's the point of that? If praying to God isn't about getting him to do what you want him to do, why bother? From outside the family, you don't see God as a dear Heavenly Father who will only ever do what is best for his children. You either see him as some distant deity that you have to somehow finagle or butter up enough to get what you want, or you see him as some rival that you have to overcome or persuade to your way of thinking. From inside the family, though, we can come to know the truths of God's fatherly divine goodness and mercy toward us that does wonderful things for us without any merit or worthiness within us, but simply because he is our dear father and we are his dear children. Knowing and growing in the truth of our father's goodness leads us to pray evermore for God's will to be done. Wrestling with the will of God gives way to a peaceful surrender to his plan for our lives and the lives of others, whether we understand it or not. 
From the Word of God, we learn to know our real needs and the needs of others, and we grow in laying those needs before the Lord without prescribing to Him how He should provide for them. As dear children, we learn from all their dear Father has done for us in Christ to trust Him. As the Spirit teaches us through the Word to know our Savior and the God who gave Him to us, He opens our lips up to pray, not my will, but thy will be done. For truly indeed, the only prayers that are answered are those that are prayed in accord with God's word and under his will. God's will is the only right will. His way is the only right way. Not because God is some overbearing parent who has to always have his way, but because he truly is the Lord and knows what is best for us all. The Father answers all prayers offered in the name of Jesus, but only prayers that are in accord with God's word can be prayed in the word's name. The Spirit will not take part in prayers prayed against the will of God. The Son will not take such prayers upon his lips before the Father's throne. The Father's will is one with the will of the Son and the Spirit. We must remember here that the Lord in mercy and grace is inviting us into his act of speaking with our prayers. We are not bringing him into our will, but he is bringing us into his will. He gives us the privilege of bringing the needs of the world before him that he might answer them according to that will. As Luther repeatedly says in the small catechism, God will do what he wants to do even without our prayers. God is not bound to our prayers. He as Lord does what he will when he wills according to his own good purposes. We do not alter God's will with our prayers or strong arm him into our way of thinking. There are without question times in the Holy Scripture where God's people seem to be trying to sway God from his set path. These times, however, are not so much about changing God as they are about changing those who pray. As God moves people to intercede and draws out their intercession, he brings them closer to the mind of Christ. As Christ spurs the Canaanite woman on in faith by making reference to the fact that it's not right to feed the children's bread to the dogs, so too God at times pushes people on to plead all the more for what he already wants to give them. Here he leads them ever deeper into his own will for the world. What our dear father does through the prayers of his children. Since the Lord is God and will do what is best for the world and us apart from our prayers, the question could be asked, why pray at all? And if God is going to do what he wants anyway, do my prayers do anything? Do they matter? These questions, even though they are natural ones, come from an adversarial way of seeing God. Repentance and faith, we need to be reminded that God is not the adversary. Someone else has that job. When we see God adversarially, we're seeing him from the wrong side of our baptism. At that moment, we're standing in someone else's shoes, someone whose shoes Christ has saved us from standing in when he delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Our prayers are not about moving God, but moving us to embrace and live in his will and his work all the more fully and deeply. Through our prayers, God makes us a part of his work. He honors us with a place in the family salvation business. He treats us as his true children as he gives us a share in the son's work. 
Why do we pray then? As God's children, we must be about our Father's business. Our dear Father draws us deeper into his family. Now, if God is going to do what he wants anyway, do our prayers do anything? First of all, without question, the very act of praying does great things for us in the life of faith. Prayer is born of the life of faith, but it also serves the life of faith. We pray because we believe, but we also pray that we might believe. Prayer leads us deeper into our relationship with God. Just as communication in our human relationship deepens our bonds with one another, so our relationship with God is deepened through our communication with Him. As the Lord shares Himself with us through His Word, so too through our Word we share ourselves with Him. He comes to us that we might come to Him. God could grant all that we ask without our speaking a word to Him, but He draws us deeper into our lives with Him by giving us the opportunity to share ourselves with Him. He draws us closer as He invites and enables us to bring all our needs to Him. Although an infant has a relationship with his parents, from the moment the child is born to them, that relationship deepens and grows as the child grows and learns to communicate with his parents. In the beginning, they share all with him, but through their speaking to him, he learns also to share himself with them. They know him from the start, but his knowledge of them grows through his communication with them. His relationship to them deepens as he learns to share himself with them. So too in our life with God, from the moment of our birth as his children in holy baptism, we have a relationship with him. He is our dear father, and we are his dear children. As God shares himself with us through his word, he also teaches us to share ourselves with him. As he speaks to us, he opens our lips that we might speak back to him. In prayer, we live out our relationship with our Heavenly Father. As we encounter need in this world, our own need and the needs of others, the Lord opens our lips through faith to bring these needs to our Heavenly Father. As these needs bring us to call upon the name of the Lord, they lead us to live out our father-child relationship with Him. We pray to Him because He has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus, to be our dear Father in Heaven. As we act in faith on this revelation, we confess it, and so are confirmed in it. I call out to God because he has shown me in Jesus that there is no other God who can save like him. As I call out to him in such faith, that faith is exercised and it is built up and strengthened. Here's the reason that God allows need in my life and why he doesn't always take it away immediately. Here's the reason why he allows suffering and trial in my life, that I might learn to pray. He allows these needs to come upon me that I might be turned toward the Lord and call upon his name. He allows these needs to come upon those that I love that I might learn to spread out priestly hands with Jesus and intercede for them. He allows need to come upon the world that I might cry out to heaven for it. He allows people to persecute and hurt me that I might learn to pray, Father, forgive them. The Lord could provide for all my needs without my prayer, as he does with the rain and the sun for the creation. Yet by drawing me through need to call upon him in prayer, he leads me to live out the truth that he is my heavenly father. God will grant whatever he wills to grant for me, even without my prayers. But by enabling me by his spirit to ask for these things, he draws me ever deeper into the truth that he is God.
Our dear Father involves us in his work. Now, our prayers serve an invaluable role in our life of faith, but they do also accomplish great things in the world. In them, as I mentioned earlier, we take part in God's active speaking in the world. God could, without question, accomplish his will without our prayers, but he chooses, chooses out of his great grace to involve us in his work as his true children. Our prayers as they are prayed to the Father and the Spirit through the Son truly take up their place in the ongoing creative and active speaking of God. God wills to do this out of love for us because we are his children. Through our prayers, God wills to provide for the needs of others. He wills to keep evil at bay in the world. He wills to prosper his gospel and expand and strengthen his church. Through our prayers, God wills to accomplish his good and gracious work for the world. As we pray with Jesus in God's will, the Lord does some of his mightiest work through us. If we were fully to grasp this truth, we can see how quickly we would take up St. Paul's encouragement to pray without ceasing. In our sinful tendency to see ourselves standing on our own two feet, independent of God, we tend to lean towards our own action when it comes to the needs we run into in the world. At times, we can treat prayer as a last resort when all our other strengths fail us. We treat prayer like little children who only cry out for their parents' help after trying to do something on their own until they finally break down in frustration and tears. I know I've caught myself saying, sometimes all that we can do is pray, as though prayer was the lesser of the things we can do as God's children instead of the greatest thing that we can do. At times, God allows us to face such overwhelming trials and troubles just to leave us without anything but those most powerful words, Lord, have mercy. When it comes to our lives as God's children, we need to understand that growing up doesn't mean growing out of our dependence on him, but growing into it. The life of faith is be about becoming more childlike, not about being big and strong and independent. In school, it's frowned upon when little Johnny shows up with his giant life-like erupting volcano to demonstrate the real-time flow of lava to his fellow four-year-olds in kindergarten because it's clear that dad had a hand in little Johnny's work. Not so when it comes to our work as God's children. Our work as God's children is meant to have our father's fingerprints all over it. It's at its best when it does. We get to be a part of truly beautiful things when we fold our hands so that the Lord's hands might be at work in us and in the world. When our hands are busy mucking around, we might be able to proudly say, we did it on our own. But the volcano is just a lump of gray plasticine with a hole pushed in the middle and some shredded construction paper sticking out of it. Yeah, we did it all by ourselves, but it lacks the wow factor that's there with the one that dad had a hand in. The wow factor of the project we're invited to take part in can be seen in John's vision of the multitude from every tribe and nation and tongue standing before the throne of the Lamb, waving their palm branches and crying out their praises to the Son of David who has saved them. The will of the Father is the salvation of the world. He does not de desire the death of any sinner but that he would repent and live. He wills that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. He does not desire the death of any of his little ones, but 
does not desire that any of them should perish. God's will is to work all things for that good purpose, whether it's joys or blessings or a thorny crown and a cross. God wants to save us. God wants to save all. This is the will of God that is the ultimate goal of all our prayers, that the Lord would save the world. This is the sum total of what is prayed for in the Our Father. Christian prayer at its heart is always a mission prayer. The end goal is always the multitude with each one of you as a part of it. As God's children born anew to him from above in the waters of holy baptism, we are being reshaped into his image. All that we will be is already conceived within us, but its truth is being unfolded in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. Although we might not be able to see it very often, as his true children, our Father's will is our will. Our old sinful man may struggle with that will on the outside. He may even rage and fight against it at times. But the new man embraces it with joy, even if it means a cross for us. God in his wisdom knows what is best, and we, as his true children, desire the same. With Jesus, we learn to pray in hard times. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. I hold on to the truth that you are my dear Father, and I can trust you to do what is best, what is best for me and others. Through the Spirit's work, dear brothers and sisters, we can even be brought to the point of praying with Jesus that whatever is best for others is best for me, even if it means a cross for me. The goal of God's family conversation. As dear children of the Father, praying for the salvation of the world is what we are to be about. This does not exclude praying for all the things of life and the struggles and joys that we meet from one day to the next, but it does mean being brought to see these needs in the light of this ultimate and greatest goal. A good case in point would be our prayers for the sick. There's perhaps nothing that can move us to pray more than a diagnosis of cancer for ourselves or someone that we love. We are right to ask God's healing hand to be at work to restore this person's health. Yet our ultimate goal is that they be eternally healed through faith in Christ. God's healing miracles in the Gospels, after all, are never end goals in themselves, but signs that the kingdom of God has come near. They are there to point to the greater healing that the Son has come to bring. We are right to pray for the healing of the sick. Our focus, though, should be on their salvation. I know for myself this does not come naturally. I have no problem with committing myself wholly behind a loved one's physical healing while their eternal salvation gets a little less attention. Perversely, I can even think that focusing on the person's eternal salvation shows a lack of commitment to their physical healing, as though my dear Father in heaven would only grant such healing if I was fully committed to it. When it comes to physical healing, I have seen things over my time serving Christ people as a pastor, many different things. I have seen a widow in her 70s miraculously recover while a far younger man died of cancer. The older widow was all alone and ready to be with the Lord. The younger man had a large family that still needed him. There seemed to be no sense in what happened. But some years later, the older widow married a man who got to hear the gospel because she married him. The younger man who died ended up bringing hundreds of people to church to hear the gospel at his funeral. 
There would have been a far smaller crowd at that service had he followed the rest of his family into living into very old age. If only one of those people is helped on their journey to heaven through his death, I know he would be humbled and blessed by the honor of being a part of that. I've also seen a young baby recover from certain death to bring her siblings and parents into the church. Well, I've seen the death of a man in his 50s that without question has cemented his family's life in the church. I've seen a man die from cancer far before his time, but end up dying in faith because of it, while before the illness, he was convinced he was going to hell. While we might have ideas about how we think the Lord should unfold his answer to the trials of our lives, he alone knows how all the pieces fit together into his great plan for the world. He alone knows how each detail of my life is to be used for my good and the good of others. As God's children, we need to understand that we truly have been invited into this great work of the Lord, which in this world is normally accomplished through a cross. Through our baptism, we've been united with Christ and made a part of God's salvation plan for the world. God gave his son to save his enemies. He has baptized us into that son, and so we are brought into that life of sacrifice. While I lay my needs before the Lord when they come upon me, the heart of my prayer as a child of God is that he would use my life as his child for the good of others, whatever that may be. I may have my heart set on physical healing, yet if my death were in any way to serve, to help someone along their journey toward heaven, that would be an honor and privilege far beyond what I deserve. If someone should stand before the Lamb in eternity, because in some small way God used my life or death to connect that person with Christ, could there be any better way to spend my earthly life? our joint speaking for God's great goal. Through baptism into Christ, we are God's children, and so are a kingdom of priests, as St. Peter tells us. We are called into the sacrifice of Jesus, being asked to take up our crosses and follow him for the sake of the world. We're also called into his intercession, his pleading, his act of speaking for the life of the world. We do that both together and on our own. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we come to the family table to share in the family meal, and we join in the family conversation. We hear the Lord's word, and we join in its speaking with our prayers. As God, through his law, sets our needs and the needs of the world before us, and then the gospel reveals and gives the answer to those needs, we pray in the light of that answer for our needs and the needs of others. The pattern is set down by Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, Whereas our great high priest, he prays for his disciples in those very hours where he gives the church the heart and center of her weekly meeting and the gift of his own presence in his body and blood. At the family table, we join in the family conversation. We join in God's act of speaking for the world's salvation. Often in this place, the pastor, as a servant of Christ, takes up the pleas for all and all speak through him as they join with him with their amens and responses. Here we live out in figure the truth of how our prayers enter into the heart of the Trinity. We are only God's children through Christ, and so we only enter the family conversation in Jesus. As this pastor speaks to us for Christ, so through the pastor together we speak to the Father through Christ. While God can and will do his will in this world even without our prayers, he in great mercy 
has chosen to work through our prayers to accomplish His good will. When the children of God gather together to call on the name of the Lord, great things are happening. As I have already said, these prayers do not have more value in being prayed together, but in them we live out our family life together as God's children. As we open our lips together, we're reminded that we never pray alone, as in faith we never stand alone, but ever part of a great whole that the Lord is making one even as we are one. Throughout our life, the church has had a rich life of prayer. As we are told in the book of Acts, from the beginning, the disciples devoted themselves to the prayers, which in all likelihood were the daily prayers and services at the temple. In freedom of the gospel, the church has had hours for prayer, laying out services where the God, word of God is paired with praying. This custom has fallen out of practice for the most part in our midst. We have the services in our hymnal, but the daily prayer services, for the most part, are not prayed in our congregations on a daily basis. Our modern world leaves little room for such gathering and group praying. With a deeper understanding of what God does, does to our prayers, there may be a place for our congregations to set such times for joint praying. It may only be the pastor who can be there. He alone may be speaking for the all. But his praying for all in that hour accomplishes great good nonetheless and emphasizes for the whole body that truly this is the Father's business that we should be about in the church. In his sixth century manual for pastors, St. Gregory the Great said, there could be no greater blessing for the people of God than to look in the church throughout the week and see their pastor on his knees before the altar praying for them. As our churches are placed in our individual communities throughout this country, that the light of Christ might shine in their midst and the good news preached from their pulpits, they are also placed in them that they might be a blessing to those communities in prayer. In recent years, we've revived the custom at Trinity of tolling the church bell with each petition of the Lord's Prayer. As each toll of the bell rings out over the farms and fields around the congregation, it announces the truth that in that moment, the children of God are calling on the name of the Lord and the petitions of the Our Father for the good of our community. As the wind carries each resounding toll across the land, the Spirit, Spirit bears our pleas to the Father through the Son for the salvation of those around us. In this, we as the Lord's children are also reminded that our prayers are not just for our own good, but for the good of all. We are reminded in this way that our prayers at this moment are joining us in the heart of the Father for all those around us. While without question we pray for the good of the whole world, there is a truth that God places his children in specific places and callings that he may do his work in those places. Our individual speaking for God's great goal. As this is true for us as a whole, it is also true for us individually as well. God has placed each one of us in a particular place amongst particular people that he may do his good work there for those people. As we call on the name of the Lord for ourselves and our own needs, God also invites us into his active speaking for the good of all those around us. Our vocations in this world give us those that God wants to serve through us. One of the greatest ways that God does this is through our prayers. From childhood on, we learn to pray for God's blessings upon our families. As we grow in years, God gives us greater opportunity to pray for them as you open up our eyes to their needs in new and greater ways. The heart of our prayers as God's children 
Naturally, it's the salvation of those that God has brought into our lives. We pray for His work through trials and troubles and blessings and joys to draw them closer to Him. At home, at work, at school, at church, God gives us all kinds of people to keep in prayer. Even in our trips to the grocery store or the mall, there are people that God brings into our lives that we can ask for his mercy upon them. Yes, you can even pray for the police officer who pulled you over on the side of the road to give you a speeding ticket. These prayers do not need to be long, drawn-out affairs. Like the modern practice of texting, it simply can be a plea for the Lord's grace for the person and his blessing upon them. Now, as we get to pray for others, as we live with them or meet them in our day-to-day journeys, we also have a special place as God's people to bring them with us to church on Sunday. Obviously, we like to bring them physically with us to share in Christ's gifts, yet still we can carry them with us, even when they themselves don't come. Dr. John Kleinig has a beautiful way of applying the gospel account where the four friends carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus to our prayer life as God's children. In the account, the four friends in faith carry the man to the house where Jesus is, and when they can't get him in, they make a hole in the roof and lower him down. Notably, Jesus connects the friend's faith with the miracle. Just so, Dr. Kleinig says, we can carry our friends to Jesus when we come before him on Sunday morning. These friends have no faith to bring them, and so we, in our faith, carry them to the Lord and leave them with him. Here is a place where we can especially bring all those in our lives who have known the Lord but are left behind the safety of the Father's house. As we come before Jesus, as he stands in our midst, in his flesh and his blood, we can carry these dear ones in our hearts and lay them down before him that he in grace might grant them to rise up and return home in repentance and faith. Our enemies included in God's great goal. Both as church and as individual children of God, we without question can never hear often enough our Lord's word to us to pray for our enemies. In truth, those who persecute us and hate us are in need of prayer far more than anyone else in our lives. If we were to divvy up our prayer time, our enemies probably should get far more attention than our friends. Although our dear Father, of course, doesn't hear our prayers on the basis of how much time we devote to them, the time we devote does reveal the direction of our hearts. Praying for our enemies is not something that we easily take up, but it is the way of the Lord's heart, the way he has invited us into as his children. In our daily lives, at any given time, we may be at odds with someone. It may be in our families, at work, in our neighborhood, in our schools, and even in our church. Sometimes we can, without question, say that this person is our enemy. Other times we may want to shy away from that term, even if we know that the relationship isn't all that it could be. In any case, these are the people that need our prayers for their sake as well as our own. Now this praying, of course, is not the prayer that calls God to straighten them out, but the prayer for God's blessing upon them and a healing of the trouble. Praying for them in this way keeps us in God's heart for them and guards us against falling into sin's way of hate. The help for this person begins first and foremost in the healing of our own hearts toward them. When it comes to life in the church, we especially need to hear our Lord's word about praying for our enemies. In any congregation, at any given time, there will always be some that are having a hard time getting along with others. 
Sometimes these divisions can be quite severe, while at other times they can be relatively minor. The church, without question, is the family of God. The members of the church are the Lord's own children, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, and so brothers and sisters of one another. The family life is to be a life of love, but the church is also the place where the sinners gather. I tell people at home, if you're looking for the good people, don't come here. The good people don't need to be here. Only sinners come to this place for what's given out here. God does great things amongst his people in the church, but they are still sinners. And so they still sin against each other. And though there ought not to be, there can be divisions amongst them. They might not want to call someone their enemy, but they do act like it toward them. Here again, the Lord wants to draw us into his own heart. He calls and encourages us, even as through his own forgiving love, he enables us by his spirit to pray for those within the church that we struggle with. In praying for our enemies, we should be especially cautious about coming to God with answers that we think are needed in this situation, how we ought to straighten these people out. This is not a place to call down fire from heaven upon them. As James and John found out, Jesus isn't into that kind of praying. We are best in these places to call in the name of the Lord for their well-being and blessing as we ask the Lord to lead them in the same life of repentance that we seek from him for ourselves. When it comes to divisions in the church, our Lord's word to pray for our enemies without doubt needs to be heard and take root amongst us. Although we as a synod have so much that unites us, there are without question some divisions amongst us. This is the way of sin after all, and as each congregation is made up of sinners, so is our church body. As God's children, I know that we all lament these divisions and long for their healing. Sadly, even in the church, we can come to see others on one side of a debate or another as enemies, or at least treat them as such. Debate needs to happen in the church. The Reformation showed us clearly the truth can never be taken for granted, but must constantly be upheld and defended. Teaching and practice must ever be examined in the light of the scriptures, or it doesn't take long for us to get off track. Yet in this debate, the enemy is ever crouching at the door, waiting to take hold of our hearts and lead them away from love. How important it is then to take up the names of those that we see on the other side of such a debate and earnestly pray for their well-being and blessing that together in love we may work through these questions as children of God. As we pray for those within the church that we don't exactly get along with, we should also remember those outside our body that are lost in error, whether it's those who are seeking to follow the Lord or those who have embraced false gods. As the Lord brings the nations to our front doors with all our international immigrants, we couldn't get a more Pentecost-like environment if we tried. Stepping out your front door these days brings you in contact with the whole world. Here again is a place for God's children to pray for those who don't know Christ. When the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking and you're hiding in your house and pretending that no one is home, here is a perfect time to pray for them. As you drive by the mosque that sprang up on the street corner in your neighborhood, here again is another opportunity to call on the name of the Lord. As the CBC has yet another program featuring someone who is pushing the LGBT agenda, here's another time to pray for God's mercy on someone. When you see the depraved criminal on TV who just finished killing umpteen people in some school or workplace, here again is a place to pray for mercy. And yes, as hard as it may be, 
we can pray for a messed up young man who killed three men who devoted their lives to protect us, even as we remember their families and fellow officers in their great grief. If you're ever worried about not being useful in this world, you only have to watch the evening news to know that God's got plenty of work to keep you busy. As God's children, the Lord has wonderful things he wants to do with our words. As our dear Father, he is ready and willing to answer his dear children every time we call. We have the Lord's name not so that we can curse our enemies. We have the Lord's name that we might call upon it to save them. There's without question a lot to be angry about in our world. So many are turned against the Lord and his ways. The temptation is ever there to rise up in judgment against them. The temptation is ever there to run them down with our tongues. But this is not the way of the children of the dear Father. He has much greater things for us to do. The family conversation, the great work of our lives. As a child, I prayed for my hamster and I got my budgie. I wanted to talk about sunshine and butterflies instead of asking for things that didn't seem to matter as much to me. Without question, God delighted in my prayers. I was living up my life of faith in my simple way, but God did have greater things in mind for me. He wanted to make me a part of his things. Greater things. Yes, there are many greater things that God would have us be a part of in our world, in our country, in our communities. Yes, even in our church. I know that you know the horrors that surround us in the world and at home. I know that you know how more and more are abandoning any kind of true morality to embrace whatever is right in their own eyes. I know that you know that people are ever being turned in on themselves and being overcome by hopelessness and despair. I know that you know how fewer and fewer hear the word of the Lord and call in his name. I know that you know how many who once proclaimed the name of the Lord have abandoned the truth to proclaim the lie. I know that you know how the persecution of the faithful is on the rise in the world and here at home. I know that you know that so many, so many of our congregations are aging and even shrinking. There's no question that there is a raging sea of need all around us. There are times when it's towering waves and bottomless depths overwhelm me. There are times where I'd rather not face it or think about it. I feel so small and useless in the face of it all. These, of course, are times when I forget that these troubles are not mine to solve or carry. These are times where I am living out my own God complex instead of living in the truth of my baptism. There is only one who can deal with the wounded brokenness around us. God and God alone has the answer for the world. He knows what it needs and he knows how best to give it. I cannot and never will be the answer to anyone's needs, but in his great grace my dear Father wants to make me a part of his answer. He wants to use my mouth and my voice to take up his word, call in his name, and be a part of his work in the world. Dark times? Yes, we're living in very dark times. Times not unlike the first centuries of the church. Are we oppressed? Yes, of course we're oppressed. Christ is with us, after all. We wouldn't expect the world to be for us, would we? Are these frightening times? Terrifying. Satan is having his way with so many around us. But God, in his wisdom and the greatest of grace and mercy, has honored, honored you and me with the privilege, the privilege of living in these days, my friends. I know we tend to cry out in dismay 
at all the horror of our world and wring our hands over the sad state of affairs in the church. I know when we look back to the glory days of the 1950s and 1960s of our church body here in North America, we might see these days as not such a great time for God's people. But you and I have been granted the great privilege to stand with the few in these dark times that the Lord might show the surpassing greatness of his power and shine his glorious light into this dark night. In his mercy, God has asked us few to stand with his Gideon against the overwhelming hordes that are rising against us. The challenge is so great that it leaves us in no doubt that we have nothing in ourselves to win it. All that we have are the trumpets of our voices in the name of the Lord. These may not look like much in the eyes of the world, and sadly we too may despise them at times, leaving them to lie in a corner while we try all kinds of other means to win the victory. In these dark days, there's no question that the Lord wants to renew his people in the special place he has given them as his children to call in his name for the life of the world. He, in great grace and mercy, continues to give us more and more to pray about. These things are not allowed to come to pass, that we might throw up our hands in the dismay, but that the Holy Spirit might fold them together instead and teach us to pray. Are we being humbled in this time? Without question. But whatever humbles us is good for us, as it takes us out of our own pride to stand in the Lord and the Lord alone. Like Jesus, my dear brothers and sisters on the cross, our hands and our feet are all being nailed down. All that is being left is our tongues, that we might cry out with him for the life of the world. Finally, in conclusion, family life and speaking go hand in hand. As God's dear children born again, the waters of holy baptism, the Lord has brought us into his own family, that he might speak to us, that we might speak to him. He has made us a part of his own family conversation. He speaks his word to us. We respond to that word in our prayers. God involves us in his family speaking about the family business. This business is revealed so clearly to us in Jesus is the salvation of the world. As God involves us in this business through our prayers, he hears us as his dear children simply because he is our dear father. As his children, our speaking becomes like his speaking. Speaking his word according to his will in Jesus, our speaking becomes an act of speaking that does great things in the world. All of this depends on God and God alone. It has nothing to do with any worthiness or merit in us. God simply does this out of his own folly, divine goodness and mercy, because he is our dear father and we are his dear children. Lord hears and answers all his children, young or old, solely based on his fatherly love for us in Jesus. A whole life long, the Lord wants to draw us ever deeper into this truth. Then the good news of the gospel, we come to see God ever more as such a dear heavenly father, rather than as a distant God that we have to sway to our will. Learning in the good news of the gospel to truly know him, we by grace can be matured into believing and praying in the truth that Father does really know best. As Jesus told his disciples, the Lord has great works that he wants to do through us. He has honored us 
as his dear children, to be a part of the great unfolding of his salvation of the world in these dark days. May our dear Father in heaven be at work in our lives as individuals and as a church to open our lips that we might call upon him and so fulfill this great calling to the glory of his holy name. Thank you. I, I'd invite you to rise and we'll sing uh, one more hymn uh, to close. Thank you.